The Map Room, a business owner's guide to the art of harnessing choice. The podcast that explores the world of business through the decisions owners face and the choices they create. Join the conversation with Paul Barnes and Stuart Brown as they walk through some of the toughest decisions you have to make while leading a business and how understanding the choices can be used to guide strategy and optimize outcomes. Brought to you by Map and a host of special guests. Well, hello and welcome back into the deep, dark recesses of our bunker in the map room. And today we are going to go into the deep, dark recesses of the mind with a business psychologist. So it's uh, my first pleasure to welcome with us today Hannah Johnson. And Hannah is the founder and managing director of Excel Business Psychology. Hello and welcome. Hi, Stuart. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. So without attempting to be the amateur psychologist in the room... Uh, I would hazard a guess that the first question most of our listeners will be considering today is what exactly is business psychology and what is a business psychologist? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I like to kind of break it down into the two parts, really. The business part is fairly obvious. Psychology is a science. It's a study of the mind and people's behaviour. So essentially what we're doing in business psychology is we're taking that into the workplace, that study of people, why they do what they do. Um, If you're a manager, if you're a leader, why do you manage and lead in the way that you do? And my role as a business psychologist is to support that through various different interventions so to speak so through coaching one-to-one group coaching training uh, all sorts of different things like that okay so i suppose the obvious next question is why would a business engage a business psychologist and how would they benefit well i think that the, the main purpose of engaging with a business psychologist is to essentially make your organization more effective more productive more profitable even and you do that through your people so the obvious I suppose uh, perception is that people engage with people like me when they've got a problem in their organization so that could be a cultural problem or it could just be a problem with uh, a particular individual who isn't performing and I would say that that often is true that I have been approached to work on projects where we need to improve the culture of of, of a team, of a department, of an entire business. It can also be the case that you do have um, an individual who isn't performing to the best of their ability. They're not reaching their full potential. But I would say a lot of the time that really you're dealing with people who are high performers, that people want to invest in their you know, top level of leadership, they want that extra 5% rather than taking someone from bad to good or even good to great, they're going from great to exceptional. And so that's really why I find people engage with me for the kind of work that I do. And the benefits are huge, drastic, the the changes that you see in people. I certainly find a lot of the coaching, the one-to-one work that, that you do, you really see the changes there. You see the light bulb moments for people. You see their complete shifts in perceptions about how they view themselves, how they view their teams, how they are going to operate in the best way. And um, it, it's, yeah, it's fascinating to watch. There's so many different ways that it can benefit. I think one-to-one for me is... Uh, where where you see the most drastic change. And how do you um, maybe, I'd say, conceptualise that? I, I would think that sometimes, as you say, 
somebody says to you, you need to see a psychologist, you sometimes think there's a problem. And so, you know, if you're doing, and you used the word coaching there, so how much do you uh, portray as coaching as compared to being a psychologist when you're dealing with somebody? So they're not, you know, they're, they're not suddenly thinking, I'm seeing a business shrink, I'm going on the couch. Yeah, I think um, people do have that view sometimes. You get a lot of people when it's quite common that I'll be engaged by a chief exec or a managing director and they'll want me to work with people in their teams. So those people initially haven't engaged with me directly. They can be a little bit hesitant to what's this going to be like. Yeah, is it a bit of a shrink therapist session or is it someone who's going to come in here and judge the way that I manage and lead my teams? So you have to be very careful that you're taking that step to be non-judgmental, be empathetic and actually position yourself as a supporting counsel almost rather than someone that's going to dictate how to lead and how not to lead because everyone leads in different ways. So I would just like to bring you back there, maybe to a controversial point, but something that you've just said. You've just said that one of the skill sets is being non-judgmental and being empathetic with those people. I would suggest that potentially, you said there, I'm often brought in by the chief exec or the MD or something, is that sometimes those people in those positions have often got there by being judgmental and by being um, less empathetic. I've been really fortunate in my career working with some amazing HR managers and HR directors, and maybe coincidentally, they've all been female. Mm. How much do you think that the natural personality of of the female psychology, the female mindset, the female brain is naturally more empathetic, mm. maybe naturally less judgmental? Do you think that is that... Um, is that a a, a a male female thing? Is it a generational thing? Have we, mm. Are we becoming less judgmental? Are the people you're working with becoming more open to this kind of input? It's a really interesting question. And actually, I would say that 80% of my coaches are men <laughs> that are uh, decades older than me. So it's, it's a really valid point. And I think that there is definitely a sway in the empathetic nature from a gender perspective, like you say, towards women. Um, But it's the the research around that, I mean, there's lots of different studies, but to quote one, you're looking at about 69% of women with this preference for making decisions um, based on people, feelings, opinions, you know, how are people going to react to this? Um, So it's... uh, that still leaves quite a little bit of of room for a lot of women who don't particularly have that preference, who are more uh, sort of objective and rational uh, in their decision making. Whereas um, you do have a lot of men who have that preference. And it's really interesting for me through the coaching process, because we we call that kind of the difference between a thinking and a feeling preference. If anyone's uh, covered Myers-Briggs, they'll they'll know about that. And um, the thinking preference is more common in men, um, but it's also common amongst women as well, uh, about 42%, something like that. So with men, I think that actually it's more of a perception that they should be Yes. Brutal and ruthless. And actually, I meet a lot of guys through my coaching who they, you know, you're almost giving them that permission to be what they want to be, which Mm -hmm. is to be kind and empathetic. But almost society has made them feel that they have to be this version of themselves Mm -hmm. that ultimately 
doesn't serve their people. It doesn't serve building good relationships and uh, being able to understand and motivate your staff in the right way. So especially when you're kind of, we're not talking about junior levels in a business here, we're talking about the senior people who have the most impact. They are the people that that really need to nurture that, that side of them, whether it's there or not. Interesting. Well, fascinating. Fascinating for me, um, because again, you know, it not only is it about there's lots of evidence out there that says, um, you know, and we're in a world which, for all the right reasons, is be- becoming more open to gender bias and all those things. And you know, as a, you know, I used to say middle age. That was probably 15 years ago, and I was middle age. Probably still <laughs> older age now. Um, the things that I thought were normal when I went through that career that have changed, and now having a um, you know, 22-year-old daughter who's just starting in her career. Uh, it's fascinating to see how people have changed that approach and how psychology has become, I would say, more... Um, I, I'm not going to say the norm, but more accepted. I think there is, for all the right reasons, there are more and more people now. I think every generation is becoming more open to mm, discuss definitely. themselves as a person. That can only be brilliant. And, and as I say, on a pure selfish reason, there is buckets of evidence that show that the more diverse your work for, workforce and more importantly the more diverse your board is that your company is going to make better decisions for some of the reasons that you just alluded to there absolutely yeah we will come on to the sort of um psychology of decision making because it fascinates me and i know that you know you talk about personality types and i'm pretty sure i, I don't remember it but i think i'm entp from myers briggs from from memory did that years ago um my uh, i was fortunate to to do that um through a, a, a through a partnership with bt and i remember looking at it and of course typical me actually disagreed with what <laughs> it said um and yet my wife said this is the most you know this is the most insightful thing this is you yeah uh, and it woke me up to realize that actually if i don't understand my personality type mm. uh, a how can i improve it but also it may it opened my eyes to the to the fascinating thing which i've done a, a lot more since about the interaction between personality types yeah. and very often um i say that i spent too long in my career working with the same kind of people that kind of bubble yeah. uh, and now understanding why that has does create the biases that you don't see yeah and why you can do it so talk me through uh, the personality types and how that can affect decision making and maybe if you're putting together a team and we'll, I'd, I'd love to come on to the, the psychology of recruitment and all that later because mm. i think that's a, a big thing at the minute with um, post-pandemic world etc yeah but i'm fascinated in if i'm looking to build a team hmm. how do i understand and recognize the personality types and how will that affect the decision making the performance of that team yeah well with regards to understanding the personality types we've got lots of different ways we can do that haven't we we can sit there with someone and have an interview with them and we can deduce from that that they are a certain type of person but for me, I feel like if I was to recruit someone into a team without doing a psychometric on them, I would be just be completely blind to what they're really like. And so for me, psychometrics are a huge part of how you understand more about those personality types. And you've got to find one that, that, that works for your business because everyone's different. I've got clients who use more motivation-based psychometrics to understand the personality preferences of people in their team. You know, what what's under the surface, not what do I just see 
them behave like every single mm. day, but actually what drives them? Some people are more interested in that and some people are more interested in, you know, what, what behaviours do I get day to day? How do they lead? How do they communicate? How do they build relationships? What's their thinking style? And so I think that you're absolutely right. What you have to make sure is that you've got that diversity and diversity in thinking style, diversity in relationship building style, all of these different things are, are absolutely crucial to be able to have a team that is functioning to the best of its ability. You have to be aware that when you just strip it down to a simple conversation with a person, that you are drawn to the people that are like you, yep. that have the same approaches as you, and you, you have that vibe between you and you think, oh, I really like you, I really get on with you. But that doesn't mean that you're going to make the best decisions for a business. You know, we were talking earlier, weren't we, before we came on about, um, you know, private equity and a lot of the private equity processes involve psychometric assessment to be able to understand, OK, I've got a CEO here and I want to back this person to grow this business and take it where it, it, I know it can go. But I need to understand what kind of team they have around them. We might have someone who's um, at chief exec level and they aren't particularly empathetic and they are quite judgmental. Maybe they would be described as their, by their team as quite ruthless. So long as we've got a, a team sitting beneath them or alongside them in partnership together who plug those holes, then we're fine because we've got that balance across. We can't expect one person to be everything. We can expect that person to develop the sides of their personality that perhaps are unhelpful in certain situations. But actually, that perhaps that ruthlessness or that lack of empathy in certain situations might make them great at what they do and able to make the kind of business deals that they need to make. So we don't want them to change that. What we want them to do is enhance and recognise the situations that it doesn't serve mm. them and develop that. But really having that diversity across the team avoids us putting pressure on one person to be perfect. There's... Um I've heard you speak before about this concept of type versus trait, so mm. let's maybe cover that because, you know, again, going back to the kind of things I've uh, been exposed to and used myself, you know, years ago was the famous Ken Blanchard, you know, situational leadership. And that was more about trying for you as the person, for you as the, as, the, as the manager in that business or leader in that business, understanding and almost getting you to behave differently with the person. And yet maybe that goes against thinking these days so rather than me um sitting there saying okay i'm going to be i'm going to be directional in this instance i'm going to mm -hmm. be supportive in this instance does does that still have a place or is it about building the team where there is maybe one more directive person one more supportive person what's your thoughts on that I think that naturally people, when we take something like situational leadership styles, I think that people have a preference. <laughs> so some people just naturally are more directive. Some people naturally have more of a coaching style, more of a motivational style. Um, I still think there is a place for it. And I mean, it's something I actually still talk about with my clients is how do you adapt? Because some people, they go into a, a situation they try a, an approach and they see that they've got some results so they just repeat mm. what they've done and they think well that's the way I've got to be with everyone and then suddenly a couple of years down the line they get someone into their team that actually needs a totally different style and they start to wonder why is this person not why am I not getting what I want from them classic personality clash or well, that's what we call it maybe it's not yeah and 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 a lot of people will come to me and they'll say so how do I you know how do I get this person to do what I want them to do 
well, okay, well, they're not in the room, you're in the room. So how do we get you to respond differently to them, to perceive what they're saying in a different way and to, to look inward to yourself as to how you're managing them, how you're communicating with them and see if that can change in order to help them be different. Okay, so explain to me then this concept of type versus trait. Okay, so type versus trait is all about personality. So when we are, we, we, we've already spoken about Myers-Briggs. So Myers-Briggs is a classic personality type instrument, essentially. It's a way of us assessing the difference between really broad personalities. So if you almost likened it to say, are you an apple or are you an orange? That's what personality type is. Puts you in a box, so to speak. Whereas personality trait is much more detailed. Um, so things like um, an occupational personality questionnaire that's got you know, hundreds of questions and it's asking you all of these different things. And instead of saying you're an apple or an orange, it's kind of saying, well, how apple are you or how orangey are you? And Satsuma so, or tangerine, maybe. Yeah, exactly. The subtleties, exactly. Yeah. And it goes into the detail and the depth. So when we're talking about recruitment, you know, we've kind of alluded to that already. When we're looking to bring people in, we usually want to opt for a personality trait instrument assessment to, to kind of do that rather than personality trait because we want to kind of get the the subtleties certainly between you know if you look at a group of um say you're recruiting um into kind of an accountancy junior accountancy kind of position the likelihood is that personality type wise you're probably going to get a lot of the same types yep. whereas on trait you're going to get totally different characters and personalities i can resonate with that yeah yeah so that's why it's usually preferred on the uh, kind of bringing people into the team when you've got them in the team actually personality type can be really useful because almost as, as you alluded to before it allows you to not just look at yourself but look at the people alongside you personality type is easy enough for non-psychologists to understand so it can be really good to just talk about those and say here are the you know different pref four different preferences easy to understand and we can then compare you're an ENTP, I'm an ISFJ, and we can work out that those differences a little bit more and understand, you know, one another better rather yeah. than pulling out a seven-page personality yeah. trait report, which is just too detailed and overwhelming to yeah. understand. Fascinating. So I suppose if you're looking to build a team, there's two things, isn't there? There's the team that you already have and there's the team that you want to have. Mm -hmm. And so... How do you address, maybe, so, you know, you've had somebody in the business, been in the business five years, they performed a function. One of the things that we talk about a lot is the difference between startup and scale-up and the mm -hmm. kind of personality and individual that you needed as you're building that business. Not always, but most often is very different personality and style when you're trying to scale that business. You're trying to come maybe more regimented, maybe more process-driven. How do you cope with the differences between, as you say, somebody says, look, we're going to do this work now, but these five people over here never went through any of this and they've been with us a long time. What's the, is there a risk of excluding those people because you're only doing um, psychometrics for new recruits? And does that, does that work? Does it fail? Or is it something about going, do you know what? We've got to start with everybody here on a clean slate. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good point about, you know, as a business is growing even just more generically people start to feel left behind and uh, they get less time with the owner or the chief exec or whoever's at the, the, the kind of the forefront of that business and um, it, 
there's those differences, isn't there? You, as you grow, you have to have more procedures mm. in place and you have to do things in a more formal way sometimes, which the people that have been there from the start when there was mm. 10 people, you know, it, it's very different when you've got 50 or you've got 500. So I think that um, for me, I really don't think it matters at all what you do or don't do. It's all about how you communicate it. And so long as you're communicating with the people that have been there, that have got the tenure, they've been there with you 15 years, however long it's been, versus the people who are, you know, now helping this to grow. And actually, usually the people that have joined the business because they see its growth yeah. potential, the people that have been here from the start, maybe it didn't have that same kind of yeah. feel then. Whatever, whatever the reasons are, I think it is all about the communication for me. So let's just... Um, dwell on communication for a second because mm. I, this is something I find fascinating and being open and honest challenging. Yeah, yeah. Because there is, um, I have had times where people have said, I've not been clear enough in my communication. And that's because I'm wanting to present that person potentially with an opportunity and I'm looking to see that person recognize it, deal with it, and do something with it and not just. Um, I've I've told you to go and do this. Um, so it's about the personality of how much is the communication, um, you know, my, m colleagues of mine and my family will say, I like black and white questions and black and white answers. That's how my brain works. But that's not how other people um, communicate. So is it about finding the mixture of, is communication, sorry, the mixture of personality A and personality B, or is it about personality a saying look this is my style of communication so long as you understand me now let's look at that that you've understood it how does it work because i think communication is communication is clearly the difference between successful teams and unsuccessful teams but it's something that i know i've struggled with personally mm. it, it, i agree with you yeah it's definitely a huge factor in success and for me i always encourage my clients to ask how do you like to be communicated with? So for ex a really simple example, you've got someone leading a team, managing a team, and they'll, they'll we'll be talking in one-to-one in, in -one coaching about how this person has, maybe they've got something wrong, they've made an error or they've behaved in the wrong way and this um, individual wants to give them some feedback. So I'll ask the question, how do they like to receive feedback? Mm, I don't know. So go and ask them, ask them how, how do they want you to give that feedback to them? Do they want an email? Do they want to be spoken to on the phone? Do they want you to sit them down? Do they want it just delivered in a kind of jovial way in front of everyone in the office? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And you don't know until you go and ask them. And I think with communication, so much of it is about understanding. You can translate that into personal relationships. How do you communicate with your partner, with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, you know, whoever it is, your cousins, your aunties, your uncles. I think we assume so much about how a person wants to be communicated with and that's all based on how we like to be communicated yes. with it goes right back to your biases so you've got to ask the question you've got to understand what do those people want in a personal situation we don't usually give those privileges to people but certainly in a work situation when mm. arguably there's more to <laughs> more to lose if we get it wrong yeah you've got to ask the question mm. and, and as i say understanding it's fascinating that it wouldn't it genuinely wouldn't occur to me to ask i would i would think and i'll consider because you know i always say my biggest weakness is i see the world through my eyes yeah uh, and therefore as you say um you know i will ask a question the way i want i would want to be asked it or or deal with somebody so i suppose it's about having the bravery 
Um, one mm. of the values that we um, hold close at MAP is, is the concept of bravery. So it's about the bra- being brave enough to ask that person mm. rather than seeking to maybe control the conversation. And I've made those errors in the past where I have sought to get the outcome I've wanted by controlling or conditioning conversation and looking back and wondering, well, where did that go so very wrong? Because it was obvious to me. Mm. But obviously it's it's completely, I may well have been speaking in a different language to that individual. So mm. I think what you're saying there is enlightening and and it would be amazing to uh to get some understanding of that from maybe we'll start talking to to staff is is that point that says okay you know you assume this you assume standing in front of the room the old town hall steps we're going to call it mm-hmm. but actually understand how the people want to receive it because i'm assuming the the more comfortable you are receiving the information the communication the feedback the more likely you are to accept it and act on it and all those things Absolutely. And I think bravery is, you know, very, very closely aligned with that vulnerability piece. And being a vulnerable leader is is the most powerful thing, because when you step out of that idea of being the person that doesn't make mistakes, that gets everything Mm. right, that's word perfect when they deliver their town halls and you just allow yourself to make mistakes like a normal person and say the wrong thing and ask questions that allow someone to potentially criticise you. Because if you've been giving, if you've been communicating with someone in your team for the last two years in a certain way and then you suddenly ask them, how would you like to be communicated Mm. with? And they describe the opposite of what you've been doing. That's opened you up to vulnerability, you know, to be able to hear that what you did wasn't exactly what I wanted and and people don't we don't always like to hear that so I think taking that vulnerable step is is really important but oh it's, it's so powerful really amazing to watch when you get clients that go and do that and and ask those questions that they've not asked for for a very long time <laughs> fascinating so let's maybe touch on the subject of recruitment because I think this is a challenge that many of our listeners are going through we're going through it and and and, and lots of our clients are going through it in terms of We've come through, hopefully come through a COVID situation. We are back now into potentially this hybrid working and I'd be fascinated to talk to you about the psychology of that in a moment. But thing of recruitment, so we're trying to recruit and lots of our clients trying to recruit and other people that I know in other industries and related industries are saying that it's really difficult right now. And we've been speaking to recruitment consultants are saying to us that they've never known a time where there's been such a sense of entitlement in the candidate market. What's your view on that? Is it, is it, is it a generational thing? Is it a, is it a natural, um, what would I call it, sort of defensive mode, self-preservation self, um, mode after coming out of COVID? What, what's your thoughts? I think it's it's difficult to tell, isn't it? Because we can't have one. We've we've got all of these situations um, that we're having to deal with. We don't. We couldn't exactly tell what it is. I think that definitely, COVID has played a part in certainly the expectations, even just from a salary perspective, that people have. Because when you've got less people there available, they can demand higher salaries, and that's. Uh, that's certainly something that I know a lot of my clients are, are, are dealing with as well. Um, I think that it depends how the recruiters are defining entitlement. I suspect that some of it is to do with what they perceive to be demands being made of certain generations of, of people now entering the workforce and, and maybe things around flexible working and 
um, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about working from home. I'm talking about businesses that might want, you know, people that want to join a business where they can start work at 11 and finish at seven instead of coming in at eight and finishing at four. You know, so many different ways that people can be flexible in, in, in what they offer to their um, to their people. So I think it's an interesting one for me. I don't love the word entitlement, mm. but I th- I can see where it's come from. And I think that it's about understanding and it's about recognising why are people asking for these mm. certain things? And is this something that we can provide? Because ultimately it goes back to what we were saying before, that balance of what do the new people get versus what the, the old people, yeah. the existing, yeah. exactly, the existing staff. What, what they get and what they might have mm. requested in the past and didn't get and now mm. we're recruiting someone and we're giving them all of this flexibility yeah. um it, it's it is a real challenge that i know a lot of people are experiencing at the moment because you need to pre- present an attractive mm. offer and when you've got you know big corporate companies that are generally appearing to find it easier or certainly putting those pro- yes. policies in place where it gives people a lot of freedom to work from home to work on their own schedule um, and to, to have have, you know compressed working weeks and things yeah. like that I my general view is that smaller businesses um are finding it more uncomfortable to to, to do that and um they like the the culture of SMEs a lot of the time is that people are there they're together yes. they're in the office they're throwing things around and that culture is defined by the team that yeah. are there if you've got a thousand people across six locations yeah. you can't de- define the culture on the basis of what happens in the office because people are all yeah. over the place and they're out and about so I think, you know, for me, smaller businesses are relying on people being there, but to be attractive and get those candidates um, that, that you want and you need, you've, you've got to be able to move a little bit with yeah. with the times, definitely. I think also it, it echoes back to it's about communication because, you know, I've, I've challenged this because I find it fascinating just for myself and, you know, sitting down and talking with, you know, my daughter who's now in her first post a graduate role and and her when i say expectations i think i think the phrase entitlement comes from um uh, i'm going to say biased individuals like me <laughs> that believe things should be done a certain way and therefore anybody asking for something more you know excuse me oliver excuse me can i have more please um entitlement sounds negative maybe it's back to what you said earlier about about the ability for those people to communicate because I've also been in, in in instances where I've lost really valuable members of staff to find out that it was just that something that would have kept them. So maybe it's the way in which people are now communicating. And I wonder whether if we get through this hump of because people are frustrated, we can't fill the roles, we are perceiving it, and maybe that's our psychology, we're perceiving it as negative, when actually maybe it's just stopping bad hires, maybe it's stopping losing people in a year's time, two years' time. Yeah, potentially. I think um, that we've always got to consider what does the future hold and what what might this mean for us later down the line? Um, For me, recruitment is essential at the moment. I think that we've got to be careful that we don't just make a quick decision because we have a smaller pool available to us and then that person ends up being the detriment to the culture. And I'm not saying that they're going to come and be a narcissistic, you know, um, sociopath, but even just small little things can, you know, that, that just aren't quite the right fit for the culture they that could be a lovely person but it doesn't quite fit and and actually you know when you're dealing with um i would say 
<clears throat> teams less than 100 people, that has a huge difference. Yeah. It's not worth the 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 even just a few months of an impact, in my opinion. Yeah. I've got clients who will say to me, we're really struggling. This might be on the sales side. This is an interesting one. So you've got... Um, a lot of people that are, are sticking put because it's very hard at the moment if you move in a sales role and then you have to have a whole Perform, if you've yeah. performance and you've got um, a salary that is you know part basic part bonus and so you don't really want to move because you think well then I don't know what that's going to be like in this new place so I'm seeing a lot of well we're, we're going to try and pull c- candidates from here there and everywhere and we'll just give them a go we'll see how they get on give them six months and I think that's all well and good, but ultimately you have to take that view mm. on what is their impact going to be on this business because it's not just six months of a salary that you know we can we can weather yeah. that storm because yeah. it's not just money, it's the impact that they have on the rest of the team. And for me, not even just culturally, it, it's that sense of the, the poorest level of performance is the accepted level of performance in the team. So actually that can drive productivity down in other people who naturally are good performers. So I think getting those decisions right and not being too... Um, risky i would say mm. in just let's get someone in the door see how they go because i think that we had the privilege to be able to do that four or five years ago i think it's a, it's a little bit more difficult now mm. i think uh, again i've made this mistake and i and i i see people uh, continue to make the mistake which is you think that recruiting that person is is the important decision and that solves a problem and not considering as you say the impact on the culture and the, and the other sort of areas um Culture for me is, again, a fascinating question. So is culture in your mind something that um, people talk about leadership-led or, um, you know, um, in in the thing that I love in the rugby, you know, player-led culture, you know, leadership-driven, player-led. Is a culture something that should be um, not, I can't use the word dictated because that has its own negative connotations, but Mm. should it be driven for someone or should culture be the function of the amalgamation of those personalities? What's your view on that? I think definitely the latter. I think that it, for me, in a really simple way, when I try to explain culture to my clients, I explain it as the, the quality of the relationships that exist between the people in that business. And it comes right back down to communication because the quality of the relationships is, for me, determined by the quality of the conversations, mm. the quality of the communication. And and so if you've got a load of people who have really strong relationships and they're able to do exactly as you've described there, take that more um, flexible approach to leadership. So, yes, we've got someone in a, a senior position. They have a position of status. But certainly from project to project, client to client, you know, whoever it is we're working with, whatever service we're trying to provide, whether that's internal or external, the leadership should change just like in a football team. You know, it's not always just staying with Mm. the manager. It might be the goalkeeper at certain points in the game, the captain. So that leadership flows around the team. And I think that when you have really strong relationships, that's that is easy um, to achieve. And so that for me is what a good culture is is it's about having really strong relationships between each of those people where they're not serving themselves but they're serving one another in this greater thing which is the business fascinating um talk to me about um the concept of we said there about uh culture and maybe the leader's job in setting the culture and, and driving it and 
one of the things that um, I come across more than I think most people recognise in some of the non-exec work I do is how difficult it is being that leader and the concept of being lonely at the top. And I was very fortunate um, 25 years ago now um, as a young MD where somebody who mentored me used to say, look, you know, who makes the clown laugh now? You know, you're on your own there. And I think lots of people aspire to build these companies and build a culture. And from what you're saying there is if the best culture is bottom-up driven, then potentially the senior, the, the, the founder can find themselves maybe slightly to the side of the culture. Mm. What's the psychology about the the lonely at the top sort of syndrome? Well, I think, firstly, I would say that there will be some people listening to this that probably disagree with my view that culture is bottom up and some people, and to be honest, there are businesses I know where actually it is the opposite of that and and there is a, a particularly unique character that's leading that business and, and the culture really flows from them. I think that you can avoid being lonely at the top if you immerse yourself in that culture if it is bottom up driven because you are getting in there with your teams you're communicating with them you're being vulnerable and doing the jobs that you know perhaps in you know a few decades back you wouldn't dream of doing because you want to you know maintain that position of power um but i think it is a really fair thing to acknowledge that when people progress and they um get to that point where they're running their own business it's yeah it's difficult because there are certain things that you then can't there's there's no one above you Mm. to talk to why it's good to have a you know good non-execs and a good chair those people around you on your board that that you can rely on and um you can share those concerns and worries with because there are things that you just you can't Mm. you know share with your staff and um it's not appropriate to and and you you use the word share there a couple of times let's talk about maybe the concept of sharing decision making so again the concept of lonely at the top i often say to people that um and specifically when we talk about startup and scale up is that the decision making process changes and there's a lot of evidence that says in these in the industry that we serve sort of this latency space that lots of agencies fail at 23 people and circa just under 1.5 million and that's fundamentally because that's probably as much as any one owner operator can spin that many plates and I think there is a um, an issue of the business owner believing they have to be the decision maker sometimes the ego says I need to be the decision maker um, talk to me about you've spoke before about team decision making and this concept of uh, I think your analogy in the way again the way my mind works I like to paint pictures you you explain to me as like a tree so let's go through that because okay. I think that's fascinating to understand yeah so I just going back to what you said before, I think that the the decision making uh, is really, really crucial in the growth because when you've got a small number of people, you can make all the decisions. But as that team grows exponentially, you have to then start to be able to let go. And yes, I think um, it's interesting, those stats for, for kind of the digital agency space. Um, I think across sectors, it's about two mil. Mm-hmm. So that's when you start to see that plateau of, of, of growth. And, it, and it's all to do with the founder's failure to let go. And so that's why really putting good 
decision-making uh, strategies in place as you grow, it is almost like one of the most vital things that, that, that you can do. So the idea of the decision-making tree is that you have a way, a methodology to almost assess different levels of decisions and what decisions should sit with different people. So the idea is that the leaf level decisions are the things that an individual could just, they anyone in your team could make a decision. They don't need to tell you about it. It's almost the leaf's fallen off the tree. It doesn't disrupt the tree whatsoever. No one even really notices. And those, those are the decisions that actually sometimes um, there can be a lot of approval levels that things mm. are going through you know it has to go right up to the founder the founder has to have an input and a say and really they just don't need to so making sure that true leaf decisions are just that they're just left to the individuals that we have recruited we know that they're good at their jobs and we can leave them to make that decision the um the 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 branch level decisions which come next are slightly different in that you would make the decision so someone in the team's made the decision and then they've they've let someone else know and that can be the same for the founder you know making sure that they're communicating a decision that they have made which becomes important as the business grows because communication has to go through various different channels rather than just we're all sat in the same office and you can hear the decisions yeah. that have been made then when you go to trunk we're switching that up. So rather than then rather than making the decision and then telling someone, before you make the decision, you're communicating that out. So you're getting that approval and that permission to say, is this the right thing to do? Should I go forward with this? And finally, the um the root level is uh, more collaboration. You know, we're involving people. We might involve the whole business in this decision that we're going to make, or we might involve, um, you know, all levels of, of leadership. And the idea is that if we, again, go back to the analogy of the tree, that if we're making decisions at root level, those have the ability to collapse this whole thing mm -hmm. if we get that wrong, if the roots die. So we need to make sure that, that we've made sturdy, strong decisions that involve lots of different people. The the I would say the leaf and the root, fairly obvious. You know, we know what those decisions are. The subtleties come between leaf and branch. And those are the plate that that space there just between those two is where a lot of leaders get it wrong. Yeah. Because what they're doing is they are for, for, for decisions that that they aren't involved in. They're asking people to mm. come to them and say, yes, this is it. This is the right thing to do because they want to feel like they have involvement. They want to feel in control. They might start to feel a bit mm. lonely that all these decisions are happening without them. So we need to make sure that you you run that by me before you go and do it. So you get a lot of businesses where people are in, in senior positions, not just the founder, chief exec or MD, you know, it can even just be that lower level of, of leadership where they're getting all of that approval to be, to be run through mm. them when actually it's not needed. You can just give it to that mm. other person and say, make the decision and, and let me know. So you increase that autonomy, you empower them to make their decisions. Um, and I think that's a really interesting mm. uh, shift. It's subtle, but it's a really interesting shift that can have a lot and make a big difference. I think it's a huge uh, catalyst, good or bad, in terms of when we talk to people who are looking to grow their business, potentially on an exit plan, mm. um, it's that thing about, well, you know, you have to build a management team. Yeah. And the management team fails for all those reasons. The management mm. team fails because the founder still wants the last say. Yeah. Uh, the management team don't understand where their authority stops and starts. Mm. Um, and I suppose all of that comes back to where you started, which is communication. Yeah. And being clear on the remit and the responsibility mm. and you know in classic case 
you know it used to be and you know with the accountant's head on it often used to have a number against it mm. so you know a, a leaf decision is anyone can spend up to 50 pounds or whatever yeah. and etc cetera, etc cetera. so okay interesting so i'm conscious of, of time and there's a few things i wanted to go through so i'm always interested in founders and where they came from and your journey and talk me through what was the how did you get into it? How did you start this? And what, what, because business psychology, if I'm not wrong, I first saw you many years ago now speaking at MMU. And I believe at the time you were one of the first cohorts to do this thing. So I still think today, um, MMU are the only people delivering that course. You can do business with psychology, but business psychology exists. Mm. So you know that going back to bravery was probably a, a leap of faith for you to do it because it wasn't you know I'm going to study geography or I'm going to study whatever. Talk to me about how you got into this. So my initial uh, venture to university started with a degree in psychology and counselling because I thought that counselling was really the only way you could apply psychology mm. in the world. And when I went to university, I learnt a lot about different areas of psychology that I just simply did not know existed and business psychology or occupational psychology was was one of those. So I, I um, went off to do my master's in that. It was actually, that was in organisational psychology, a, a different uh, term, but they all mean the mm. same thing. And um, and then I, I uh, managed to get a job at a local, um, a Manchester-based uh, agency who, consultancy, sorry, and they were focused on looking at organisational resilience and, and individual resilience within organisations. And, uh, and I worked there for a bit and I, I really enjoyed it because you started to get to see this ability to apply psychology mm. within a business and they used a lot of metrics a lot of, it was very data-driven business and you could see in in all of the staff surveys and feedback that was coming through this change in people's ability to manage stress and deal with their workload through these interventions that had been delivered so that was kind of my first real you know dip my toe into it and I loved it and I thought no this is what I want to do in, in my career so I then moved over to a company called Carter Corson which was when yes. we met I was working there and that was just so brilliant for me because I had um, a chief exec who was just the most Im incredible mentor and she really supported me and was really top of her game she still is and she was incredibly vulnerable in the sense of she would open up and talk about the things that she mistakes that she'd made mm. and things that she'd done along the way. And it, it, she was incredibly inspiring for me and uh, rewarded me for the, for what I gave to the business, which was uh, amazing and allowed me to set up on my own, which mm. is what I did about 18 months ago now and uh, haven't looked back since. <laughs> I think at this point as well, it's worth putting on record that as you say, that personality of, you know, the less egotistical person, the person you say um, wants to see others flourish. You know, yeah. I reached out to you at Carter Corson to have a really polite email that said, I'm sorry, Hannah's no longer with us. She's actually doing her own thing. I'm sure she'd love to come and talk to you. And here she is. That that in itself is a fantastic um, 
uh, I would say, example of maybe that culture and that person. And I think that's worth Absolutely. putting on record because we, we you don't see enough of that, in my opinion. You don't see enough of it. And uh, I'm sure Hazel will listen to this when I send it to her and uh, she'll she'll have a little chuckle to herself about me, me describing her in this way. But she she really is a, an admirable person yeah. and she, she embodies, as much as she'll say, I'm not the leader that I tell my coaches mm. to be, she is. She yeah. is incredible. And she... I was I was young you know I I was a year out of university yeah. when she brought me in and she just taught me everything she she didn't look at me and, and I get this a lot you know people look at me and they think oh you're you're quite young how can you I've had people over the years say to me what do you know about management what do yes, you know about exactly. leadership yes, yes. where's I'm, your grey hair or whatever yeah. I'm the youngest yeah. person in the room and I'm the one stood there supposed to be the font of all knowledge and she she didn't look at me and see that she looked to me and thought I see someone that's smart that's ambitious and I'm going to teach you what I know and this is what I've turned it into, and it's it's amazing. Fantastic. Are you still involved with MMU? I think last time we spoke, you said you'd, you know, I know I've seen you go back there and speak as, you know, alumni, et cetera, and you, I think you mentioned you were involved in sort of like this exceptional performance side. Yeah, now. so I sit on the advisory board for the Centre for Professional Excellence, which is, um, a, MMU have a number of different centres for various different things, usually more academic-driven um, ones. And the Centre for Professional Excellence is all around essentially taking the knowledge that, that the university has in terms of its lecturers and its, its academic knowledge and putting that out into the community, into the business community, um, through workshops, seminars, even one-to-one consultancy and support. So it's it started a couple of years ago and we're, we're slowly building that so that essentially in the future it becomes a real... Uh, almost event space but also consultancy yeah. space for people to engage with the university and potentially then go on to you know engage with them for further education so yeah the advisory board is um uh, a really interesting group of people that are um supporting the development of that as it grows fascinating fascinating so how do people find you hannah we're going to wrap up now to the last question so if i was a uh, either starting out i'm looking now to maybe develop my team I've just got challenges that I'm struggling. Or do you know what? I just want someone to listen to me scream. <laughs> how do how does a business owner find you now? So they can uh, they can connect with me on LinkedIn, send me an email. Um, my website should be going live. I've managed to get through 18 months of having a business without a website. So I um, I've decided now is probably the time. More so because I've got a lot of uh, blogs that I've written and I want okay. to actually put out there. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, please get in touch and and let me know. I mean, I'm always up for a conversation and I think that, yeah, it's right that sometimes people just want to have a good... good moan <laughs> and uh, share what they're going what's going on for them so um yeah okay well listen i want to obviously thank you for sharing your expertise and knowledge with us today i hope it's been useful to listeners we always try to give things that are real takeaways and real things that people can resonate with and maybe think through in their own business and their challenge and i think we've co- covered some fantastic areas there so i'm just going to say thank you again and uh, thank you for listening to uh, this episode of the map room Thank you. The Map Room has been brought to you by Map, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies. Subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode.